Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federal Society virtual event. My name is Jack Durbin and I'm Associate Director of Practice Groups here at the Federal Society. Today, we're excited to host a panel discussion titled Suing Religious Employers, the Extent of Exemptions in Title VII. Joining us today is an accomplished panel of labor law and religious liberties experts who bring a range of views to the topic. In the interest of time, I'll keep intros brief now, but you can view our speakers' full bios at fedsoc.org. Professor Carl H. Esbeck is the R.B. Price Professor Emeritus of Law and Isabel Wade and Paul C. Leida Professor Emeritus of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law. He has published widely in the area of religious liberty and church-state relations and has taken the lead in recognizing that the modern Supreme Court has applied the Establishment Clause not as a right, but as a structural limit on the government's authority and specifically religious matters. Ms. Jennifer Goldstein is Associate General Counsel at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which leads the Office of Appellate Litigation Division. She oversees the filing of commission party and amicus briefs in the U.S. Court of Appeals on a range of issues arising under federal anti-discrimination statutes, including religious discrimination. Finally, Ms. Sharon Fasca-Sifson is the immediate past general counsel of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, where she enforced Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, among other federal statutes. She is now principal at Sharon Fasca-Sifson PLC. After opening remarks and discussion between our panelists, we'll go to audience Q&A. So please enter any questions for our speakers into the Q&A function at the bottom right of your Zoom window. We'll remind you of that later on. Finally, I'll note that as always, all expressions of opinion are those of the speakers joining us today. With that, we'll go now to opening statements. Professor Espec, the floor is yours. All right, thank you, Jack. Um, our primary topic this morning, or at least it's the morning in my time zone, I guess afternoon out east, uh, is the religious employer's exemption in Title VII, which is in 702A. So just as a shorthand matter, we're quite often going to just refer to this as 702A or the 702A uh, exemption. Uh, it is an affirmative defense. Uh, it begins uh, as this subchapter shall not apply to, and the subchapter there is all of Title VII. So the exemption, at least textually as it begins out, is very broad. It takes out of play everything else in Title VII if you can comply with what follows in order that you can avail yourself of the affirmative defense. Now, I want to momentarily just put that to the side because the panel uh, earlier decided I would supply a little bit of uh, context in terms of the wider religious liberty issues here. 702A is by no means the only uh, religious defense. So uh, it's common in these um, employment discrimination cases for the defendant uh, to raise RIFRA or the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. Um, in addition, uh, it's common for the defendant to raise the ministerial exception, which is a type of church autonomy defense. And it's based upon the two religion clauses of the First Amendment. Uh, 
insofar as it speaks to employment discrimination, it speaks to where the job is that of a minister or other religious uh, functionary. Uh, a third sort of defense, uh, if the facts fit, is under the free speech clause. And I'll just analogize that to the pending uh, religious liberty case called 303 Creative. Uh, that is a, uh, a discrimination case, but it's a public accommodation discriminations case. But nonetheless, the defense is that the anti-discrimination provisions are causing the defendant or forcing the defendant to speak in a way that he or she would prefer not to speak and therefore it's for speech in violation of the free speech clause. And then a fourth category of, of uh, defense is under the free exercise clause. And there we have to divide if uh, the claim by the defendant is that they're the object of religious targeting by the government, then uh, that's prohibited by the free exercise clause. We, we call that a Lakumi case, or uh, more recently, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, again, that, the, the way that could come up is, say, if the EEOC was the plaintiff, brought its own action, so they're a, a governmental actor, of course, and um, and the defendant is uh, claiming that they're the object of religious targeting and that's prohibited by the free exercise clause. On the other hand, uh, if there's not targeting, then, um, then the Smith case controls. We have a, a law which is generally applicable, no religious targeting, and therefore uh, no free exercise uh, defense. And uh, th then let me also, tag on that it's becoming, I don't want to say common, but it's certainly frequent where plaintiff's counsel chooses to file their claims, not under Title VII, but under the state human rights acts. And that can be workable for plaintiff's counsel in about half the states, I guess we would say the more progressive states or blue states, um, where uh, the State Human Rights Act either has no religious employer exemption or a very narrow one, more narrow than 702A, um, and there's no statewide RIFRA. About half the states uh, have adopted a RIFRA, uh, somewhat patterned after the, the federal RIFRA. The federal RIFRA doesn't apply uh, as to state action. But uh, if you're in half those states where there's a state referral, of course, uh, filing in state court under the State Human Rights Act doesn't get you around uh, that. But in many cases, the more progressive or blue states are those that do not have statewide referrals. So you can see the advantage of, of filing your discrimination claim in state court. Um, there, there would be no RIFRA. <clears throat> and um, and you would have uh, uh, at least presumably a somewhat narrow, a narrower uh, religious employer exemption. Nonetheless, you still would face the ministerial exception. You still would face the free exercise clause and, of course, the free speech clause. All right. Well, now let me circle back uh, with that 
sort of putting things in context, uh, back to 702A, which, as I said, uh, is an affirmative defense. And uh, again, 702A begins, this subchapter should not apply, or you could rephrase it, Title VII, or claims under Title VII, shall not apply if you otherwise meet the requirements of 702A. And there are two. Uh, one is that you have to be a religious organization. And uh, I think some of my fellow panelists, that, that's a term, religious organization, that's not otherwise defined in the statute. So it has some case law uh, definition, and some of that case law is, is a little bit conflicting. So let me leave that as an issue that we'll be coming back to uh, uh, my fellow panelists and, and perhaps me as well. And then the second requirement to avail yourself of 702A is that you have, you the employer, have a religious reason for the adverse employment decision that the plaintiff is complaining about. <coughs> and uh, quite often, of course, uh, uh, if you have a religious reason that uh, becomes uh, an issue of contention. And um, and uh, quite often the plaintiff's response to that claim that you have a religious reason for that adverse employment decision, the plaintiff will come back and, and claim pretext. All right, well, there is uh, at least two, maybe more uh, responses to 702A being more difficult for the employer to uh, satisfy than, than what I outlined for you, the, the two re elements or two requirements. One is uh, called the co-religionist uh, argument. The argument is that the exemption is really quite narrow. Uh, it applies only where the employer is Baptist and wants to hire Baptists, or the employer is Catholic and wants to hire only Catholics, or the employer is Jewish and wants to hire only uh, Jewish people for employment. Uh, I guess my initial responses to that, of course, uh, I, I don't think that that's at all correct. First of all, it, it's completely at odds with the text. Again, the text of 702A is, this subchapter shall not apply, subchapter being all of Title VII. And there's much more to Title VII than just uh, a Baptist employer uh, wanting to hire only Baptists. But that argument is also contrary to the definition of religion. A definition of religion was added in 1972 to Title VII. It's over in 701J, Section 701J. And it's quite a broad definition. It says all aspects of religious belief and practice. So when the term religion applies, it's all aspects of religious belief and practice. So of course that goes way beyond just uh, a preference to hiring your co-religionists. The other uh, response uh, is, uh, I think a little bit more serious, and that is that the exemption only applies when the plaintiff brings a claim of religious discrimination, not discrimination under one of the other protected 
classes. Uh, again, uh, this is contrary to the text. Uh, the text says uh, this subchapter shall not apply. It doesn't say uh, 702A uh, is, is a valid exemption only when the plaintiff brings a claim of religious discrimination. Uh, it's all of chapter uh, the subchapter is all of Title VII. So that would include um, even claims of retaliation or harassment uh, or hostile environment, because all of those come from the subchapter or uh, Title VII. Uh, there, there are cases going both ways. The Supreme Court has never addressed this issue. So we have a, a circuit split. Um, I guess I would just draw your attention, and that's uh, the last thing I'll say by way of uh, opening remarks. I draw your attention to a concurring opinion by uh, Judge Easterbrook, who, of course, is quite well known, uh, has been on the bench quite a long time, and he's in the Seventh Circuit, Chicago. And in a case uh, called Starkly versus the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, uh, he said, well, <laughs> there's really no way that you can limit a term like this subchapter to something meaning uh, only if the plaintiff brings a claim of religious discrimination. Plus, um, if, if it was so narrowed, then it would be easily manipulated by plaintiff's counsel. Simply avoid bringing a claim of religious discrimination. Couch your claim as sex discrimination or uh, hostile environment uh, or retaliation or so on. And, and you've easily sidestepped uh, an exemption that Congress obviously was serious about uh, uh, protecting religious organizations. So with that, I think uh, we prearranged. I would pass the mic to Sharon Gustafson. Thank you. Happy to be here and to be talking about this topic, which to me is an interesting topic. Um, I agree with what Professor Esbeck has said in large part. I think that what is happening now is that plaintiffs are bringing claims, um, harassment claims or retaliation claims and saying these are not protected by 702A. I think that's wrong. I think uh, section 702A does clearly protect those claims where there is a religious reason for the action that the employer took. And uh, the Fourth Circuit in the Kennedy v. St. Joseph's Ministries case, which was a 2011 case, says that 702A enables religious organizations to create and maintain communities composed of those faithful to their doctrinal practices. And that was a case in which the Fourth Circuit found that a Catholic hospital was protected by 702A when a church from another uh, denomination alleged harassment and retaliation on account of her modest dress. So uh, th there's always the possibility that an employee can prove pretext and then he may have a Title VII claim. But if the employer has a religious employer has made an employment decision uh, for religious reasons based on religious belief or observance or practice, 702A controls. Um, I think it's good to remember that under the US Constitution, the general rule is that people have a right to freedom of association and freedom of religion. And there are exceptions, Title VII is one of them. But 702A is an exemption to that exception, which basically restores to religious employers 
their constitutional right to associate with or employ those who are faithful to their religion. My focus today, though, is going to be on what is a religious organization covered by Title VII? Uh, Title VII doesn't define it, and the courts uh, have applied 702A not only to churches and other houses of worship, but also to religious schools and hospitals and charities. There aren't a lot of cases about what qualifies an entity for 702A exemption, um, because usually, but not always, it's quite obvious. Uh, the Supreme Court hasn't interpreted it. The circuit courts have differences of opinion about it. Uh, the, the courts um, have recognized that the statute doesn't mention nonprofit or for-profit status, although that is a factor that is almost always considered. Um, and the courts have also recognized that engaging in secular activities does not disqualify an employer from being a religious organization and that religious organizations don't need to be affiliated with a house of worship in order for 702A to apply. Some courts, and uh, by way of example, I'll point out the Ninth Circuit in EEOC v. Townley, have defined the religious institutions as those who, whose purpose and character are primarily religious by weighing all significant religious and secular characteristics and determining whether the institution is primarily secular or primarily religious. Um, in, in that case, there was uh, a Christian employer who covenanted with God that their business would be a Christian faith-based business. And they included gospel messages in their outgoing correspondence and in their internal company documents. They provided financial assistance to churches and missionaries. They held a weekly devotional service. And an applicant um, signed a statement of faith and agreed to attend these devotional services. But after he was hired, he announced that he was an atheist. And the EEOC brought a religious discrimination case uh, on his behalf. And the Ninth Circuit noted that Townley Manufacturing produced a secular product, was not affiliated with the church, and did not mention a religious purpose in its formation documents. And the court weighed all the factors and found that it was not primarily religious, and therefore it did not qualify for the 702A exemption. But I want to point out that the primarily religious test is problematic because so much of what religious people do to practice their religious beliefs appear secular to most people. In fact, perhaps the only things that Christians do, and I'm speaking from my experience, um, is that appears completely religious might involve baptism, communion, and prayer. And the first two of those don't happen in the workplace. And the prayer in the workplace would be expected to take only a few minutes of each workday. Um, but for many, practicing religion involves what people think of as secular things, feeding the hungry, tending the widows, adopting the orphans, assisting the immigrants, you know, the list goes on and on, and nursing the sick in hospitals. And although this appears entirely secular, religious corporations are sometimes established to accomplish these purposes. And those corporations also have to hire bookkeepers and groundskeepers and the like. And 702A protects them if they have a preference to hire those who agree with their religious beliefs and practices. So it's important, if I'm a practitioner, it's important if you're advising religious organizations that you make sure that they consider very carefully their um, articles of incorporation, their statement of core beliefs, their employee handbooks, and other such things. Uh, the First Liberty Institute, which I am associated with, is a public interest law firm um, dedicated to protecting religious liberty, and they've prepared a religious liberty protection kit for religious employers that describes these things in more detail. 
The EEOC guidance lists nine factors that the courts consider about whether an employer is a religious employer. And I'm not going to go through all those now. You can find them in the guidance. Um, the EEOC guidance says that where an employer asserts a 702A defense, the commission will consider all of the facts. And although there is a lack of clarity about the definition of religious employer under 702A, there are two things about 702A that are absolutely clear. You've already heard reference to them, but I'm going to note it again. Uh, 702A is clear that Title VII in its entirety does not apply to religious entities with respect to employment of people of a particular religion. And the definition of religion in Title VII is absolutely clear that it covers not only religious belief, but also observance and practice, or what we usually call conduct. I suggest that there are two cases where the court correctly interpreted 702A to apply to a corporation which was not a house of worship. The first is the Ninth Circuit in 2011 in the Spencer v. World Vision case. World Vision describes itself as a Christian humanitarian organization, and that organization terminated three employees who the case says denied the deity of Jesus Christ. The Ninth Circuit held that the, an, an entity is eligible for a 702A exemption, at least where the entity, and it gave four factors, is organized for a religious purpose, is engaged primarily in carrying out that religious purpose, holds itself out to the public as an entity for carrying out that religious purpose, and does not engage primarily or substantially in the exchange of goods or services for money beyond nominal amounts. Um, but that case was interesting in that the panel that decided it didn't agree with each other. Uh, Judge O'Scanlan would not have required the fourth factor about um, not engaging substantially in the exchange of goods or ser services for money. And he noted that the very act of determining what activities do or do not have religious meaning runs counter to the core of the Establishment Clause. Uh, Judge Kleinfeld agreed with the first three factors, but added that fourth factor about the exchange of goods or services for money. And in her dissent, Judge Berzon said that 702A applies only to organizations whose primary activity consists of prayer and religious learning. That is the most narrow view of 702A I have ever seen articulated. Um, so the second case I wanted to note was the Third Circuit's case in Laboon v. Lancaster Jewish Community Center. This is a 2007 case that I, where I think the court got it right. Laboon is, uh, was an evangelical Christian bookkeeper who sued a Jewish community center for religious discrimination. She believed she had been terminated either because of her speech impediment and or her Christian faith. And Laboon argued that the Jewish community center was not a religious organization because it lacked ties with a synagogue and its purposes were primarily cultural, not religious. Uh, this decision notes that it held secular lectures, it employed Gentile employees, and it failed to ban non-kosher foods. But applying the primarily religious standard, the Third Circuit unanimously held that the Jewish Community Center was a religious organization entitled to 702A protection, noting that the center identified as Jewish and its stated mission was to promote Jewish life, identity, and continuity. It relied on co-religionists for financial support, 
It offered instructional programs with Jewish content and began board meetings with biblical readings, and it involved rabbis from local synagogues in its management. The court said that whether an organization is religious under 702A cannot be based on its conformity to some preconceived notion of what a religious organization should do. And it let the religious organization to define itself that way. And it gave four different liberties that religious organizations may take without losing 702A protection. Number one, religious organizations may engage in secular activities. Two, they need not adhere absolutely to the strictest tenets of their faiths. Three, they may declare their intention not to discriminate. And four, they need not enforce an across-the-board policy of hiring only co-religionists. So uh, those two cases, I think, are, are good examples and that contrast with the Townley case about the way courts look at this. I believe that the best articulation of the meaning of 702A is the one I saw in a memo from the Office of the Attorney General uh, that's dated October 6, 2017. It defines religious institutions for purposes of 702A as, quote, entities that are organized for religious purposes and that engage in activity consistent with and in furtherance of such purposes. I think that's a pretty good definition and it accomplishes the purposes of uh, Section 702A. Generally, I think that employers who are not religious employers are not going to pretend that they are in order to get the protections of Section 702A. This is the employment situation is not like the tax situation where somebody may get a tax break if they are designated a religious employer. Instead, in the Title VII context, all that the religious organization designation gets you, if you're the employer, is the ability to prefer those who are in accord with your religious beliefs, observances, and practices. And now I'm going to hand the discussion over to Jenny Goldstein, whom I worked with at the EEOC. I'm so happy she's here today. She's a really smart person who understands this stuff, and I'm eager to hear what she has to say. Jenny. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, I just want to emphasize that the EEOC did issue a religion guidance in 2021 that does, uh, we had issued a, a guidance previously in 2008. This one does a deeper dive into some of the defenses and a lot of the cases that Sharon mentioned and that I'll mention um, are cited there. And I also want to add that, that the guidance stresses that all these these issues are often very, very fact intensive. We're going to depend on the facts, on the law of the particular circuit, and uh, it encourages the investigators who are sort of on the front lines to take a lot of care um, in how they um, how they assess cases where there's a religious defense. Um, I want to pick up actually on what Sharon was talking about. I was really struck when I was going through um, reading some of those cases that Sharon mentioned and some others on what what is a religious organization on how divided uh, these decisions are. I think Sharon mentioned um, the Spencer decision where you have a, a teeny tiny per curiam decision and then these long uh, two concurring opinions and the and the dissent. The Laboon case also, uh, that was the Jewish Community Center case, also had uh, a very vigorous dissent where the dissenting judge 
um, emphasize that this community center was not owned or controlled by a formal religious organization, wasn't run by a synagogue, produced a secular product, and the three local rabbis who were on the board were just there in an advisory capacity. So I would argue that it's not just Judge Burzon and Spencer, but I think um, in that case, in, in the dissent in, in, um, in Laboon also uh, took a very, very different view. And in some of the more recent cases I've seen, um, there was a case against the Salvation Army in the Ninth Circuit, and there the court held that it, the, pan, the Court of Appeals held that it was a religious organization, citing actually to both the both concurring opinions in the Spencer case, the Kleinfeld and the O'Scanlon opinion. And then a case that seemed a little similar to me, this was a district court case in Louisiana against um, something called the New Orleans Mission. Um, and the mission of that entity was to minister to the homeless. And the court said, I, I, you know, in summary judgment, I can't say, it looked to see whether it met the majority of the nine Laboon factors and said, I can't say that it does. So that, it seemed a little different to me. The, the courts really are going in different places. And then, and, and I'll just add one last case that um, there was a 2018 case in the Second Circuit that was about the ministerial exception. It involved the Department of Pastoral Education within a hospital, a Methodist hospital, New York Methodist hospital. And the dissent though, um, so there too, there was a dissent about Grant, uh, it was under the whether it met the test to to qualify for the ministerial exception, but the dissent really relied on um, Laboon and the factors laid out in Laboon and Spencer and talked about those cases. So I um, I think they're the easy cases. Those are you know a church, a synagogue, um, uh, maybe an entity like uh, Townley Engineering that produces a secular product is an easy case. Um, maybe not. Um, um, but it is striking, I think, how there's a lot of room in the middle where judges are really, really divided. Um, the last thing I want to mention is something that was actually highlighted in the new guidance, which is for-profit status or nonprofit status. Um, you know, could a for-profit entity count as a religious organization? Uh, what we, what the guidance notes is that. Um, in Hobby Lobby, which of course was evaluating RIFRA, which has the word person, very different. It's a very different statute in terms of the word used. It's basically the court there said, look, you just, if unless a statute excludes for-profit entities, you can't assume that a for-profit entity can't count. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I think our guidance notes that it doesn't really, um, um, you know, so it's sort of, references that as a question, maybe for future cases. I, I would say, I don't know of any cases that have applied the uh, exemption to a for-profit entity. And it seems as though, at least under Laboon, um, I think Judge O'Scanlan and Spencer thought nonprofit status was important. I, I think the Supreme Court in Amos, when it was uh, evaluating the constitutionality of the provision, at least for justices, I think it thought that nonprofit status was important. I don't think that question wasn't before the court, so I don't know um, how they would have um, assessed it. But so I don't know if that'll be a question in the future. Um, but uh, I did want to mention that as one last um, point on that on that question. Um, I I want to touch a little bit on the scope of the provision. Um, 
as as uh, Professor Especk noted, certainly it does allow, allow a co-religionist preference. So you can hire, if you're a Baptist entity, you can hire, um, you can prefer a Baptist. Um, and it certainly allows a religious employer to, to require its employees to conform to religious requirements that aren't tied to a protected trait. Those are, those are I think, the easy cases. The, you know, so if if the religion prohibits smoking and you're caught smoking, um, I think that that's a very, very easy case. You know, I would also say there's a, a case called Curry Kramer, where um, it was, a, I think that's a, in that particular context, not too hard a case. That's a woman who signed a pro-choice uh, who worked for uh, a Catholic um, exactly remember who the employer was, but uh, a pro-choice um, a pro-choice uh, advertisement in a newspaper and um, she was fired and she brought a sex discrimination claim saying that men who uh, publicly advocated against the Iraq war were not uh, similarly disciplined. Um, that, that isn't, that isn't tied, that wasn't tied to, as the, the court in that case noted, it wasn't tied to, her advocacy wasn't tied to a particular employer, it was just general advocacy and to, for a court to weigh which was worse, if they were comparable, would get into religion. And so uh, the court said, we can't do that. Um, um, and, and so there's, anyway, so it, 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 it certainly, it allowed there the defense. Um, I think that the, um, the professor Espec um, uh, mentioned that the Starkey case, um, I think that's really quite an interesting case because there the district court had said that was a guidance counselor at a Catholic school who was fired uh, when the school learned that she was married to a woman. Um, the district court held that the uh, exemption doesn't apply. It said it's got to be narrowly construed. It can't, um, otherwise it would swallow up the other protections of Title VII. Um, um, this is really just limited to co-religionists. Um, but it then held that the ministerial exception did apply. And the Court of Appeals agreed on the ministerial exception. And Judge Easterbrook, which um, um, we've been talking about a little bit, actually I thought expressed a tiny bit of skepticism about whether the ministerial exception would apply to a guidance counselor. And what he said was, you know, we should be dealing with the statutory question first, the principles of constitutional avoidance, why is the court not focused on the statutory question and under the statutory question um, she should lose? I think, I don't, so maybe we'll see more of these, the statutory analysis uh, coming to the forefront. Um, I, I think in some ways the ministerial exception is courts find easier because there's just, there's, I think we've noted that the Supreme Court hasn't addressed a lot of these questions where, whereas with Hosanna Tabor and Morrissey Baru, the court, the Supreme Court really has um, has um, addressed these and a lot of the courts of appeals have. So I think courts maybe feel a little more comfortable talking about the ministerial exception. And of course, the scope is, I would say, you know, I think Morrissey Baru um, uh, is a good example. Those were two cases, uh, one a woman fired after she disclosed she had breast cancer, another allegedly fired um, because of her age. So once it applies, you don't have to get into the scope of the provision. Um, for the most part, um, you can put an asterisk on that. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll be curious to see whether courts follow what Judge Easterbrook suggested, which is go with the statute first, or whether they um, 
just go with the ministerial exception first. Um, I want to mention two cases that I think are worth watching because I think as to the scope, um, they're quite interesting. Um, one is still in district court. They're actually both within the Fourth Circuit. One is still in district court. It's called Doe, and it involves a Catholic, uh, the defendant is Catholic Release Services and, um, and their decision to deny health benefits to the same-sex spouse, spouse of an employee. Um, you know, I, I wonder, uh, Sharon mentioned the Kennedy case, uh, which said that the exception is not limited to hiring and firing, but it, she also mentioned that um, Kennedy talked about how uh, religious employees are entitled to maintain communities of faith. You know, here's a situation where the employer employs this individual, um, but just doesn't want to pay health benefits. And in that sense, it, it, it sort of reminded me of an old case from the 1980s called EEOC versus Fremont Christian Schools, where the employer paid benefits to single women, single men, um, married men, but it, it's, it wanted, it, it, uh, its religious belief was that uh, these benefits should be limited to head of household and that a woman, a married woman could never be a head of household. Um, and the, the Ninth Circuit said that's, that's sex discrimination. Um, uh, um, you, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't essentially said it doesn't matter that it's wrapped up with faith um, um, that's not permitted by Title VII. Um, anyway, I don't know that, that Doe was argued that way. The district court and Doe just sort of seemed to, to say uh, the exception is narrow. Um, it, it doesn't extend beyond co-religionists, but um, if, it, if it is appealed, it'll be interesting to watch how that's argued. And then um, I don't want to get too far um, ahead of my, into the, my time. And the other interesting case that is on appeal is it's in the middle of briefing and the in the Fourth Circuit involving a, it's called Ballard, a substitute teacher at a Catholic school who was fired when he, um, I think he announced his engagement to a, to a man. Um, there, the, probably won't get into the arguments. I think that um, the, the briefing, the briefing on the, on behalf of the school is, I think, pretty, uh, pretty thorough. I think there's some interesting, um, uh, as to whether you know whether when it when the when the religious belief is intertwined with protected trait under Title VII, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, one thing I, I'll just I'll add this and um, in, in closing, the um, the ADA, which was enacted well, it, it was enacted in '90, so the Civil Rights Act was in '64. The exception was was there. It was modified in '72. When the ADA was enacted, they put in an, uh, a defense similar to Title VII, but then they added a separate um, section that said a religious organization may require its applicants and employees to conform to the religious tenets of the organization. Um, um, you know, I, I, the the um, the employer in in Ballard is actually using the ADA affirmatively. Um, to argue that its interpretation of Title VII is, is correct. But it's interesting that um, if that language were in Title VII, I think some of the, the some of these issues would be a little easier to, for courts to resolve. And I'll, I'll end there. Uh, Jennifer, um, 
has her finger on um, an important issue um, using again, Judge Easterbrook, um, that courts are improperly inverting uh, the order of decision. They're they're getting to ministerial exception first, and then uh, to the 702A exemption later, and that's contrary to the rule of constitutional avoidance that Jennifer mentioned. Um, let me just say a word about the reason defense counsel is doing that. And I'm not saying the reason's justified, uh, but the reason they're doing it is if it's a ministerial exemption case, then it's much more uh, going to be disposed of on a motion to dismiss or a very early motion for summary judgment. Because if it is a ministerial exemption case, then it's a categorical immunity. The case is over. Whereas, you know, when I was telling you about 702A, well, it's an affirmative defense and uh, the defendant has to show two things. And then if they show two things, the plaintiff comes back with pretext. And so pretty soon you, you quite often find yourself with a genuine issue of fact and therefore in front of the jury and defendants don't want to be in front of the jury. And so so that's that's why uh, defense counsel is uh, perhaps jumping the gun. On, on the two-part test, <clears throat> uh, the first one, of course, is are you a religious organization? And let me just say, Sh Sharon touched on this, but I just want to emphasize her point, is what's really going on there is uh, in, in defining a religious organization, the court has to avoid one of its uh, violating one of its own rules, and that is the religious question doctrine, because church autonomy requires that civil magistrates not resolve religious disputes. So if your test for who is and who is not a religious organization actually poses a religious question, you end up violating the doctrine against the court uh, deciding religious questions. The leading case there is Thomas versus uh, review board. <clears throat> but if you just go to uh, the case from last term, the Carson case, a school funding case from the state of Maine, the majority said, well, the state of Maine would not fund sectarian schools, but they would fund church affiliated schools. Well, what is the difference between a sectarian school and a church affiliate? That's a religious question. And uh, so <laughs> the state of Maine was posing a test, which itself violated church autonomy. So the, the courts are struggling so hard. How, how do we define uh, who is a religious employer? Uh, they're, they're struggling because they're trying not to come up with a test that violates one of its other rules. I think the best test I have seen was in a related area over in the National Labor Relations Board. They struggle with uh, they have to, for First Amendment reasons, not uh, order collective bargaining, uh, even as to lay faculty, if you're uh, a, a very religious a college. And uh, <clears throat> but how do we know a very religious college from a slightly religious college where collective bargaining would be appropriate? And the NLRB came up with a three part test, which I think uh, could be easily used over in 702A. And they, it's the first test is, well, were you organized for 
for religious purpose, not an exclusive religious purpose, but one of your purposes was religious. Maybe it's also educational or it's also social services or, or drug rehabilitation or whatever. And the second test is um, uh, how are you holding yourself out to the public presently? And that's easy to do. Everybody has a website. So you start there. And of course, then you also look at their print literature and maybe their video literature, but how are you whole, are you as uh, one of the major reasons that you're holding yourself out is that you're saying you're religious. You know, sometimes charities uh, don't say that they're religious because they think that's gonna reduce the gifts that they receive. Well, you know, <laughs> if you're hiding your light under a bushel, so to speak, then you're you're liable to not be deemed uh, currently religious. And then the third is uh, what are you doing currently that uh, you deem uh, inherently religious? And there, of course, we we come to the kind of list of things that the EEOC has. I guess they have a nine point list uh, in in their guidance. But I, I think. Uh, there that that NLRB test is more you're asking uh, what what are you doing that's about religion not what are you doing that's religious Sharon to you Sharon I'm passing it to you but I think you're on mute not anymore, I'm not, thank you. Uh, I wanna pick up with something that uh, Jenny brought up about employment benefits. Um, and this is an interesting question. And one of the views that I have heard people express about 702A is that it relates only to hiring and firing. It doesn't relate to things that happen during the employment relationship, such as harassment or employee benefits or that sort of thing. I think that's wrong under the, the plain language of 702A. Uh, 702A doesn't talk about hiring or firing, but rather it says that uh, Title VII shall not apply to a religious entity with respect to the employment of individuals of a particular religion. And I believe that employment um, has to do with every aspect of the employment relationship. This is something that the Fourth Circuit said in the Kennedy case that I, I alluded to earlier. Um, it relates to every aspect of the employment relationship and that would include employment benefits as well. And then um, and the only other point that I wanted to respond to is to answer the question, how do we deal with religious belief when it's intertwined with protected traits? And I think that there are two parts of the answer. The first is that 702 itself tells us that Title VII doesn't apply. So we don't go there. There is an exception, I think. If you have an employee who is saying, this doesn't have anything to do with my religious beliefs or conduct. They, they're saying that it is just a pretext. They're really only discriminating against me because I'm a woman. Here is a man who did the exact same thing I did. You know, I was, I was, I'm a woman and I was fired because of my pro um, abortion advocacy. Here's a man who did the same thing and he wasn't fired. I think that's the kind of case where you would be able to come in and show pretext and, and you could defeat the 702A exemption in that case. But I think ordinarily, um, you're not going to be able 
when the two things are intertwined, unless you've got a clear pretext situation like that, the the religious protections of the employer are going to trump, and that's the way Congress has designed it. Um, thank you. I'll just make two points. Um, on that Doe case that I mentioned about benefits, you know, as I said, I don't know what they'll argue. I don't know um, what our position would be if, if, you know, if somebody asked EEOC, what's your position on this case? Um, you know, I think that the in some ways, as I said, I'll just sort of repeat a theme. Congress, in some ways, I think hasn't uh, has made it. I don't think it's as clear as you know it could be um, in the benefits context. It's um, the employer can um, employ individuals of a particular religion to perform work connected. So if the employer is fine with them being employed to perform work. Um, how does benefits fall into that? I, I don't know. I don't know if they'll make that, if that'll be an argument or not. I just add one thing about the history of these provisions. And I think when Congress was debating the bill in, in 63, before the 64 Act, they actually thought about exempting religious entities altogether. Um, and then they put in that, that didn't, that wasn't going to, uh, that was not acceptable to the majority. So they, they put in this provision and actually limited it to um, the exemption to employees performing religious work as opposed to non-religious work. And I think uh, for the reasons that um, uh, both Sharon and Professor Esbeck have talked about, um, I think that's very hard to separate out. So in 1972, they got rid of that word, that qualifier. So all, all work, if you want to hire a Baptist to perform to mow the lawn and to do religious work, it's all the same. Um, um, and the other thing I'll say about the definition, the definition uh, which Professor Espec referenced uh, was added in 1972, and it is broad, except it seems as though um, it talks about how religion includes all aspects of observance and practice as well as belief. But then it adds, unless the employer uh, demonstrates that he can't reasonably accommodate it without undue hardship. Um, so I think Congress there was thinking about individuals and individual claims um, and probably not the religious defense, although I think it, you know, I think it, it certainly it defines it for the statute. So I think it would be a hard argument to say some different definition of religion should apply. But uh, the only point I want to make is it 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 seems as though there's um, it it isn't the statute isn't quite as clear as it could be on some of these hard issues, which is why courts have struggled. Uh, Jenny, I think you've made a good point about the fact that the statute talks about um, employing people to do its to do it carry on its activities, and you could one could argue that does not reach employee benefits because it's not about carrying on activities. And that makes me think that's probably why the Hobby Lobby case was a RIFRA case and not a Title VII case. Yeah, and, and of course, I'm only speaking about Title VII and not all the other defenses right. that uh, an, an entity might have. Well, of course, Hobby Lobby was not brought as an employment discrimination right. case. Although everyone knew that there were women employed at Hobby Lobby for whom the government was working very hard to to get contraception benefits and and uh, or in, in the case of Hobby Lobby, which wasn't Catholic um, uh, contraceptions that were thought to be abortifacients because Hobby Lobby's concern was abortion. But um, 
but but the lineup there was not an employment case, but a benefits case. So Hobby Lobby had to go to RIFRA as their defense. Well, thank you all. We have about 10 minutes remaining, and I think we'll now turn to audience Q&A for the, the remainder. And I'll remind our audience, you can submit questions using the Q&A box at the bottom right. We have a number already, so we'll, we'll jump right in. We have one. To what extent can the principles being discussed in the employment context be extended to customers slash clients who assert discriminatory treatment on the same or similar basis, protected classes, reprisal, failure to provide accommodation, et cetera? And that one's open-ended, if anybody would like to take that one. Jack, could you read that uh, once more just to... Sure. To what extent can the principles being discussed in the employment context be extended to customers slash clients who assert discriminatory treatment on the same or similar basis? Well, they're not going to be bringing a claim under the employment section of Title VII. So I guess, is this a public accommodations question? Yeah, that's how I understood it, too. Uh, discrimination by a public accommodation. And for that, I will say I, I, I lack expertise. Uh, <laughs> well, um, public accommodations is over in Title II. And um, th there's the the religious exemption there is just I don't think that there is a religious exemption. So you're if if you're a public accommodation and being sued in Title II, you're left with your First Amendment defenses. And um, um, you know, so again, you've got free speech. So uh, it would be appropriate to, again, say 303 Creative, the case pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, which is a public accommodations case and the primary issue being argued as free speech, and then also free exercise targeting. All right, we have a next question here. Does having employees acknowledge receipt of an employee handbook that clearly articulates employment expectations, many of which may be based on religious tenets, support a 702A defense? It, it would be one twig in the bundle. Yeah, it's quite common to for, for the defendant to put into evidence uh, the employee handbook. And, and, you know, quite often the employee handbook has been carefully crafted by um, advice of counsel, legal counsel. Uh, but sometimes there's a separate employment contract or morals clause, which is not part of the handbook, but a separate contract. Many of the Catholic K through 12 school cases have a, a separate contract with a morals clause, and they have the teachers uh, and guidance counselors and and principal and superintendent uh, and school nurses um, sign that morals clause annually. 
Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean, it's been quite common uh, for for employers, um, especially religious employers, ever since uh, first marriage and now in the Bostic case, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity to to become uh, protected bases. And uh, so, so they've generated uh, documents so that they can raise both the ministerial exception, if, if that's appropriate, and 702A. We have a question here about benefits specifically. How is it helpful to employees if a religious organization can be required to pay benefits to the same-sex marital partner of an employee? Wouldn't that just motivate the RC employer not to hire said individuals in the first instance or to simply fire them rather than fight over paying benefits to a same-sex spouse? I'm not sure I exactly I understand the, the question. I'm a but law I, professor. I'm afraid <laughs> I don't know about motives of employers when it comes to benefits. Yeah, I think my only point by referencing the Doe case was obviously they, the employer did value this employee. They hired and retained this employee. Um, uh, there are always incentives, I suppose, one can talk about with enforcement of some of these laws. But um, I, I was just, I was sort of just wondering how the court, if it goes up on appeal, will analyze it. Um, what the law is and what it should be or aren't always the same. I want to make one observation about religious employers in this context. There are some religious employers who choose to hire only people who are of the same faith, who live the same way, who follow the same morals. I think they're permitted to do that. There are other religious employers who are willing to hire people from different faiths or from no faith at all, so long as those employees agree not to do anything um, to show that they disagree with or to undermine the beliefs of the religious organization. And so I think, and either of those is okay. So you're gonna have some religious organizations who say, yes, we're, we're happy to hire you, uh, even though you don't agree with us about all these things, but you do have to understand, these are our beliefs, this is how we're going to run our organization. And if you, if you aren't happy with that, usually, People let them know when the, on the front end when they're coming in. If you're not happy with that, this is not the place where you should be. We can't assume that every religious employer has the same strict rules or is required to have the same strict rules about um, how, how closely their employees must agree with them about things. Well, we're coming on the end of the hour here, but I think we have time for, for one more question. Someone is curious about the weight given to for-profit slash non-profit status in determining the applicability of the 702 religious exclusion. It's hardly ever come up. There's an old, old case. I think it's something like Towley, Towley Manufacturing. Uh, it was a Southern California case, but in the federal system went to the Ninth Circuit. And um, uh, Towley lost. Uh, he was found to 
discriminate on the basis of religion against his employees. And um, I, I just don't remember what the three judge panel said. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, I think they were trying to be sensitive to the fact that you ought to be able to start a for-profit business and still be an intensely religious person. But at the same time, you can't use that as a platform to foist your religion upon your employees. And that, that, and when you do that, that amounts to like make them pray with you uh, as you begin your, your workday. Uh, that's, uh, that's a form of religious discrimination. So, um, uh, you know, I, I would commend to you going back and reading that Tali case. It was widely covered in uh, in case notes and uh, law journals at the time and, and so on. I don't remember that one of the federal judges was um, uh, quite a serious Catholic and had a very reflective concurring opinion. And, uh, and I, I'm sorry, I just don't remember. Yeah, actually, I, ha I, I happen to have it right in front of me. Oh, <laughs> the site is uh, 859 F 2nd 610. Uh, it was a 1988 decision. I think Sharon was talking about it, too. Uh, it is interesting, and it references also the Supreme Court's decision in, in, um, in the Amos case, where at least some justices were concerned that if the exemption extended to for-profit activities or entities, it, would there be an establishment clause violation? I think, I suspect that um, First Amendment analysis under, in, in Supreme Court decisions is kind of uh, changing. I do think it's, oh. No, I'm done. I do think it's important to, to note that the statute just is silent as to for-profit or non-profit status. And I think it's important, I think the case is gonna, that we are gonna end up with a religious employer case where it's a for-profit corporation and 702 is going to apply. I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know what court it's going to be in. But I think about these um, organizations, you know, like monks who aren't perhaps a part of a uh, religious order. I'm not Catholic. I don't know exactly what I'm talking about here. But sometimes they will have businesses where they make coffins or they sell honey or I don't know what. And they're doing it for a profit. But they, there are so many indicia of religious status that the fact that they're trying to make money from the thing that they're selling, I think is not going to keep them from being protected as religious employers who can choose people who can prefer people of a particular religious faith. So I'm just waiting for that case. I'm, I'm interested in, in this topic and curious to see what will happen. Yeah. And I just add, I, I'm maybe a little more doubtful. I mean, the, the Salvation Army case, like the Garcia case in the Ninth Circuit talked about how the Salvation Army is a huge... I mean, they, it's a big, there's a lot of money there, but it is nonprofit. So money doesn't, um, doesn't preclude you from being held a religious organization. But I do wonder if, um, I, I don't, I just don't know. I'll, I'll be curious to see how it evolves. Okay. Maybe it will never happen. We'll see. Well, we have hit the end of our time here. I can't thank our panelists enough for joining us today for the great discussion and to thank our audience as well for uh, joining us today and their great questions. You can check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on all the major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. 
For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.